Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Been There, Read That podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Batty, and as always, this program is brought to you by ChristianResearcher.com. Today I want to talk to you about the book of Daniel, and we'll talk about some authors, some commentaries, uh, books that reference it that uh, you need to be aware of, both positively and negatively. I'll give you a little bit of background of why we're going to talk about Daniel today and how that's come up in my studies. Uh, in recent days, I've been studying in the Gospel of Matthew and in parables in particular, and I noticed that in a few of the parables you have references or allusions to the book of Daniel. For instance, in Matthew chapter 13, the big parabolic discourse, in the parable of the mustard seed, uh, this mustard seed is planted, it grows into the greatest plant in the garden, and then it turns into a tree, and birds of the air come and nest in its branches. That's an allusion back to Daniel chapter 4, where on that occasion, Nebuchadnezzar is the great tree, and the birds of the air come and nest in his branches. And what appears to be happening in the Gospel of Matthew is it's saying that Jesus' kingdom is going to be grander than one of the grandest kingdoms of all time. In the same chapter, in chapter 13, verse 43, in the explanation of the parable of the wheat and the tares, at the end of that explanation, Jesus says that the sons of the kingdom shall shine forth in the brightness of the glory. And that's a reference back to Daniel chapter 12 and verse 3. As I began to catch on to these references and allusions to Daniel, there are several other things that began to pop out at me that I hadn't considered before. For instance, when Jesus asked, when Jesus' disciples asked him about forgiveness, and they said, how many times should we forgive? Seven times. And he says, 70 times seven. That's an allusion back to Daniel 9 in the 77s. And so you start to catch on that Daniel was very popular in the mind of Matthew. The Nestle Allen, which is a Greek text, the Nestle Allen 28th edition, which is the latest edition of that Greek text, in the backs of it, back of it, it has this reference table that shows you Old Testament passages that are being referenced or alluded to by New Testament writers. And it points out that there are over 30 references and allusions to the book of Daniel within the Gospel of Matthew. That tells you again... Matthew was thinking a lot about Daniel. It's interesting, and talking to Dad as he's writing his commentary on the book of Revelation, he's having to study the book of Daniel a lot because John is referencing the book of Daniel. A lot of the imagery you find in the book of Revelation uh, comes from the book of Daniel, this concept of prophecy. How do we understand prophecy? How do we understand some of the numerology that's being used? We recognize a lot of times Daniel is important to John, but I've failed to realize that Daniel was important to Matthew as well. It's a really important book of the Bible that has been somewhat neglected in our studies. A uh, second reason that I'm studying the book of Daniel a little bit is because the 80-70 position misuses the book of Daniel, and I've had some, some need to study the 80-70 position because of um, some challenges that have come up in this area. And so it's, it's become very interesting and fascinating, and I, I need to study this book because they're making arguments out of areas of Daniel that I'm not very familiar with. There are several challenges 
I'm going to spend some time talking about the different challenges presented within studying the book of Daniel that you need to be aware of and different positions taken by different commentaries in these areas. One of the challenges of teaching out of the book of Daniel is our unfamiliarity with the second half. I have a, bro a buddy brother, Jason Ellis, down the Texas area, that he decided he was going to start teaching through the book of Daniel. And after he got to chapter 6, he hit a wall and realized that Daniel 7 through 12 is kind of a mystery. Uh, in other words, we don't talk about those chapters very much. We talk about the first six chapters, but Daniel is divided into two halves. Six, six chapters of narrative, six chapters of visions. It's interesting, in the, the narrative chapters, Daniel is interpreting dreams, and in the vision section, Daniel is asking for interpretation of dreams because he doesn't understand those dreams. The second half of Daniel is difficult prophetic material. Peter Gentry, in his uh, really thick book called The Kingdom Through Covenants, he has a section on Daniel, and he discusses the structure of Daniel and the, the separation of narratives and visions. This is really helpful structure, I believe, and Mitchell L. Chase in the new expository, the ESV expository commentary, it's hot off the press, uh, Mitchell Chase follows Peter Gentry's uh, structure of the book of Daniel. I think that's really helpful. One of the things that uh, kind of has endeared me to Chase's commentary and caused me to go back and read that. I've read a lot of it, about half of it in the last uh, week, and I found it to be pretty helpful in a lot of areas. But we are unfamiliar with Daniel. We need to get more familiar with it, especially chapters 7 through 12. The second challenge within the book of Daniel is Daniel's ability to predict the future. I say this is a challenge because a lot of Bible commentaries do not believe that Daniel actually was the writer. They don't believe that it was written when the book claims to have been written, and they also don't believe that it predicts the future. Okay, These are people who don't believe in full inspiration. Now, this is a radical concept. I believe Daniel wrote Daniel. I know that's, that's just shocking. Daniel wrote Daniel. He wrote it while he was living under both the Babylonian and Medo-Persian captivity during those empires, and he was predicting events hundreds of years down the road, even into the time of Christ. Guys who are opposed to that concept, uh, number one is John Golden Gay. Now, if you've followed our podcast at all, you know I do not like Golden Gay. He does not believe in the inspiration of Scripture. He doesn't believe there's anything such as predictive prophecy in the whole Bible. And so, shocker, he doesn't believe that in Daniel. He goes even more extreme, though, and says that the narratives of chapter 1 through 6 are actually fictitional stories. Golden Gay is a bad, bad dude. Uh, another guy that's very popular, you see him referenced a lot in footnotes and stuff in the book of Daniel, is a guy named J.J. Collins. He wrote the Daniel volume in the Herminia commentary series. He also does not believe in predictive prophecy. Uh, he believes in pseudo or quasi-prophecy. In other words, it was written to look like predictive prophecy, but it was written after the events actually happened. I reject that. I'd call that historical plagiarism position. I believe in full inspiration of the Bible. I believe Daniel was inspired to write Daniel, and he is foretailing with great detail magnificent events that are coming down the pike in Israel's history, and not only Israel's, but world history. It's one of the great proofs of the inspiration of the Bible. Third challenge that you're going to face in studying the book of Daniel is 
the four kingdoms that appear in Nebuchadnezzar's image in Daniel 2. This is an area when you pick up a writer, an author on the book of Daniel, you can open up to Daniel 2, read very quickly his position on the four kingdoms, and know kind of what you're working with with the author, or that if there's going to be some hang-ups. Uh, the traditional position that uh, most like Church Christ commentators have followed through the years is that the first kingdom represents, obviously, Babylon. The second is the Medo-Persian kingdom. The third kingdom is the Grecian Empire. And the fourth kingdom is the Roman Empire. And that's important because in the days of these kings, the Roman Empire, the kingdom of God would be established. And it would outlast that Roman Empire. Now, that's, that was a commonly held position for a long time. But in recent days, scholars are beginning to... Uh, move away from that. They believe that the first kingdom is the Babylonian kingdom, but the second kingdom is the kingdom of the Medes, and the third kingdom is the kingdom of the Persians, and the fourth kingdom is the Grecian Empire. So in other words, they take the Medo-Persian Empire, instead of seeing it as one empire, a single empire, they split it up into two separate kingdoms. The problem with that is that in the days of these kings would be referring to the Grecian Empire. I believe that's very problematic, but it's kind of surprising there are a lot of guys taking this position. I would clarify, I would classify Bible commentators in this area as good guys and bad guys. Good guys holding the traditional position include Homer Haley, Jim McGuigan, Paul R. House, who is a new commentary, a modern commentator. Uh, Peter Gentry takes the correct position, and Mitchell Chase in the ESV expository commentary, he takes the correct position on the four kingdoms as well. Bad guys, and this, this may shock my audience, I, I love James E. Smith, but James E. Smith believes that the Medo-Persian Empire was two separate empires. Um, very disappointing in Smith in that regard. Christopher J.H. Wright uh, also takes that position. And I want to say just a word about Christopher J.H. Wright. I like reading him on Daniel and Ezekiel. Uh, he gets a lot of things wrong, but the visionary experience, the narrative uh, explanation, he really makes the stories pop and come to life. He he teaches you how to tell the story. Now, he's wrong about what the story means a lot of times and the details, but he's really good at showing you how to tell the story and make that vision come to life. A fifth challenge, a fourth, excuse me, a fourth challenge in the book of Daniel is the 77s of Daniel 9. There are two basic positions uh, amongst Church of Christ writers that you need to be aware of, and then there's a problem that comes with one of these views. We'll talk about it in a moment, but basically there's a literal and figurative approach to the 490 number. Uh, the literal approach is saying it was an actual 490 years, and that this is leading up to and giving us the very year that Christ died. He's cut off in the middle of the last week. Um, part of the difficulty in that position is knowing when to start the counting of the years. I think Peter Gentry in his book Kingdom Through Covenants makes a very, very, very strong case for the literal position. And he interacts with a lot of the difficulties of when to begin your starting and how to count, stuff like that. Um, he's There are two editions of Kingdom Through Covenants. They are both worth having because of the material that he's written on Daniel 9. For whatever reason, some of the material included in the first edition is not included in the second edition. And when he rewrote the, uh, the second edition, he included some material that was not first published in the first edition. And so you really need to have both editions. It's worth it in the discussion of the literal view of Daniel 9 and the 77s. Um, Homer Haley takes a figurative position, and he thinks that, 409 is basically kind of a round number. It's a symbolic number, which I believe it is symbolic. But he also 
believes it's it's generally around that same time period, but it doesn't have to be an actual 490 years. So those are the two positions. Uh, one of the challenges in the 77 section is the concept of um, the last in the last final week or the final seven, the Messiah is cut off, and dispensationalists want to insert right there a gap of thousands of years and make this yet an unfulfilled prophecy that will not be fulfilled until Christ returns and establishes his kingdom on the earth for a thousand years and slays all his enemies and yada yada yada. Um, that's a very problematic position that you need to be aware of when you start studying Daniel's 77s. A fifth challenge in discussing the book of Daniel is that in Daniel chapter 11 he has been discussing the the reign uh, or the transition from the the Babylonians to the Medo-Persian to the Grecian Empire and then during the discussion of the Grecian Empire you have the rise of Antiochus Epiphanes and much of Daniel 11 discusses terrible reign of Antiochus Epiphanes and then when you get to verse 35 right after verse 35 there's it's uh, in verse 36 it starts talking about the king and the question arises, why all of a sudden does it start referencing the king when it hasn't done that up to this point in the chapter? And so there's a couple different positions that are presented. Um, Mitchell Chase and Kyle Pope. So Mitchell Chase wrote the ESV Expository Commentary, and Kyle Pope is a Church Christ guy who wrote a book called Thinking About 8070, Challenging Realized Eschatology, a new book hot off the press. They take the position that... Um, Verse 35 and verse 36 should be seen together. Verse 36 starts a recapitulation of what has been previously stated up to this point in the chapter. And so the whole chapter, they would argue, is about Antiochus Epiphanes, and they would also argue that chapter 12 is about Antiochus Epiphanes as well. A second position held by Homer Haley is that after verse 35, when you get to verse 36, it starts talking about the Roman Empire. So you have a shift abruptly from a discussion of the Grecian to the Roman Empire, and the last kingdom comes into view. Uh, Edward Young and Dale Ralph Davis believe that at verse 36 there is a shift, and now what's in view is not the, you know, the, not the Roman Empire, but the antichrist of the final age. Homer Haley is very adamantly outspoken against the antichrist position, as I believe he should be. He seems to take the position of Jerusalem and the Roman Empire for the sake of that being the only option. And I believe Chase and Kyle Pope present a reasonable case of why maybe it should just be considered Antiochus Epiphanes. This leads into a discussion a little bit of the resurrection that you find in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2 and verse 7. The question is, is the resurrection under consideration a physical resurrection or a spiritual resurrection? It's interesting how people are divided, commentators are divided on this issue. Uh, Kyle Pope and um, Mitchell Chase believe that Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, 12, Daniel chapter 12 verse 2 and verse 7 are the most explicit statements about the bodily resurrection in the Old Testament. Homer Haley is very outspoken in believing that it is not bodily resurrection whatsoever, it is spiritual resurrection. This becomes a heated topic in the discussion of the 8070 doctrine because the 8070 advocates obviously believe that it is a spiritual resurrection under consideration. So if this is a physical resurrection, it kind of throws a major problem 
into their interpretation. Now, I think it's worth reading Homer Haley's position, considering what he has. I believe it's worth considering what um, Mitchell Chase has to say. I'll be honest, when I read Kyle Pope, there are, popes, there are points that he makes that uh, make sense to me, but I have a difficult time following his overall argument of what's going on in Daniel chapter 11 and chapter 12. There's points where it's very clear, and I get it. I've read it twice, and I'm, I'm sure, still not sure I really follow him fully. He's He's not all that great of a writer, stylistically speaking. So I had some difficulty following him, but I thought Mitchell Chase takes basically the same position and did a really good job presenting his case, and Homer Haley more or less just asserts his position. I'm sure there are other guys who articulate it better, but he's one of the ones that I've read that asserts uh, that's about the destruction of Jerusalem, which is a common position under uh, for Church of Christ guys. Now I want to talk about, just briefly for through here, about how this discussion of Daniel 12 affects the 80-70 position. So, the 80-70 advocates say there is a lot of similarity between the language of Daniel 12 and Daniel 9. In Daniel 9, you have the 77s, which is leading up to the killing of Christ and the destruction of Jerusalem. We would agree that that's the destruction of Jerusalem in Daniel 9. So they say, since the language is similar between Daniel 12 and Daniel 9, it must be talking about the same thing. And so the resurrection has to be spiritual. This is essentially the argument that Homer Haley presents. Uh, Mitchell Chase and Kyle Pope argue against that, and they say, actually, the language of Daniel 12 is much, much, much more parallel to Daniel 8. All commentators agree that Daniel 8 is about Antiochus Epiphanes, whereas commentators are split on what Daniel 12 is about. But everybody agrees Daniel 8 is about Antiochus Epiphanes. Here's why this becomes problematic for 8070 guys. 8070 guys want to advocate that uh, language is only used in one way. So in other words, when the Bible talks about the day of the Lord, that isn't just about any judgment day. It's about the destruction of Jerusalem. There's not a final judgment day where all appear before the throne of Christ. It's always about the destruction of Jerusalem. You can't have it being about other days. It has to be about the destruction of Jerusalem. Okay, here's the problem. If Daniel 9 and 12 are parallel, they're arguing that this is all about the destruction of Jerusalem. Well, you have a problem because the same language from Daniel 12 is used in Daniel 8, which is clearly Antiochus Epiphanes. So here you have the same language being used speaking of two different events. That's problematic for 8070 guys. If Daniel 12 and Daniel 8 are talking about the same thing and Daniel 9 is talking about something else, then Daniel 12 is about the days of Antiochus Epiphanes. That does problems because it has the resurrection, whether it's physical or spiritual, in Daniel 12 being about something that occurred uh, was, was centered around Antiochus Epiphanes and not the destruction of Jerusalem. So you have you have that problem as well. And 8070 guys can't argue consistently. It's just impossible to argue that Daniel 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12 are all about the destruction of Jerusalem. And that's just kind of an untenable position. Nobody's going to buy that. So any way that you look at it, Though Daniel 12 is where they like to run to and argue for a spiritual resurrection in Jerusalem, there become difficulties with their position because of the language similarity between chapter 8 and chapter 12 and how that might relate to the discussion. Um, I'm just being open and honest with you here. I don't know fully at this point if 
Daniel 12 is talking about actual physical resurrection or if it's talking about a spiritual resurrection. Uh, either way, it's not a passage that advocates that it clears up the AD 70 discussion or realized eschatology. Uh, I do think, again, that uh, Mitchell Chase's material and Kyle Pope's material is worth considering. I hope that this discussion has been interesting. First of all, in the book of Daniel has maybe brought to mind some commentators that you're not familiar with, gives you a little bit of background into their information. In the book of Daniel and studying Daniel, uh, you might want to con consider or reference Tremper Longman's Old Testament commentary survey book because he details some of the strengths and weaknesses of a lot of commentators and this is a particular section in Daniel where that material is very helpful in pointing out who some of the bad guys are in commentaries regarding Daniel. Hey, I hope this material was interesting to you, helpful in your studies of Daniel, piques your interest in wanting to go back and study Daniel 7 through 12, especially really, really fascinating and often neglected material. You're going to see a lot of repetition, and you're going to be introduced to the concept of recapitulation, which is really important for when you get over to the book of Revelation. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you have any questions about this week's discussion, if you have any suggestions, um, please let us know. Send us an email at christianresearcher at gmail.com. We'll be happy to try to uh, consider your questions, your inquiries, and get back to you in a timely fashion. Thanks, and hopefully we'll be catching you again shortly with another episode of the Been There, Read That podcast. God bless. Have a great day. Better is our sacrifice. He paid the, he paid the price, the price. He paid it all upon the cross. No longer bound by sin or with the eternal loss. He took my sin and washed it away. When I was immersed in that watery grave, I heard that gospel call because he paid it all.